Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, welcome to the Above Board Podcast. This is Dave Lynn, and I'm a partner at Morrison Forster, and I practice in the areas of public company counseling and corporate governance. And I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleagues, Christine Wong, Gina Choi, and Adam Braverman. Christine is co-chair of Morrison Forster's Global Litigation Department and is also a partner in the firm's Investigations and White Collar Defense Group. And based in San Francisco, Christine leverages her background as a former federal prosecutor for both the Southern District of New York and the Northern District of California, in addition to serving as a vice president and head of international compliance for a Fortune 500 multinational company to counsel clients on complex investigations, white-collar criminal defense, and cross-border compliance matters. Gina is a partner of Morrison Forster's Securities Litigation Enforcement and White-Collar Defense Group, who joined the firm following 16 years of service with the SEC, where she served as director of the SEC's San Francisco Regional Office. Based in San Francisco, Gina focuses her practice on representing public and pre-IPO companies, financial institutions, asset management firms, boards of directors, audit and special committees, and individuals in internal investigations, SEC and other government investigations, enforcement-related litigation, as well as compliance-related issues. And Adam is a partner in Morrison Forster's Investigations and White Collar Defense Group, and he joined the firm following 13 years at DOJ, where he most recently served as Associate Deputy Attorney General and as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California. Based in San Diego, Adam focuses his practice on representing companies and their executives in internal and government investigations, white-collar criminal defense matters, and parallel civil litigation related to allegations of bribery, government procurement fraud, violations of the False Claims Act, and anti-money laundering violations, among other issues. Christine, Gina, and Adam, thank you very much for joining us today. Our topic really today is focused on some recent developments that we've been following with DOJ, the U.S. Attorney's offices, and the SEC regarding a variety of matters that are really important for boards to consider and companies to consider when they approach their compliance function. First off, one of the topics is in the area of cooperation and voluntary self-disclosure. And how would you compare what the DOJ and the SEC have said publicly about voluntary self-disclosure of potential violations? Dave, thank you so much for having us on your podcast. It's Christine Wong here. To answer your question about what the DOJ has said publicly about voluntary self-disclosures, you know, it's been an interesting year in the space because the DOJ has been quite active and has made a number of announcements and policy, I would say adjustments, not full-blown changes in the space. And to start with, the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, kicked off a number of these pronouncements with a memo to the department signaling these revisions. And in this memo and in the subsequent revisions, the DOJ has made clear that if a company does voluntarily self-disclose, it should be a thorough self-disclosure, right? Not just a self-serving, limited self-disclosure. If there is, in fact, a thorough self-disclosure, the DOJ has said there would be a presumption that there would be a declination for the prosecution. Of course, there may be aggravating factors, such as the company may be a repeat offender or the conduct may be so pervasive in the company that it isn't worthy of a declination. But 
fundamentally, there would be a presumption of declination absent such aggravating factors. I'll turn it to Gina now to talk about the SEC. Thanks, Christine. For the SEC, a true voluntary self-report is still considered the gold standard to show cooperation in SEC investigations. And lately, the SEC has been making an effort to set forth what successful cooperation looks like. So to the extent boards want to understand what it means to cooperate with the SEC, you can look at published settlements to see what other companies' boards or special committees have done to cooperate. And the commission has said that they've looked at the following when they seek remedies. They'll look at whether a company has self-reported. They'll look at whether a company has conducted an internal or independent investigation, whether it's provided detailed explanations of the relevant issues, summarized witness interviews, provided information to the staff on the company's own initiative. Other examples of cooperation and remediation include terminating bad actors, hiring new senior management, adopting compliant policies after concerns are raised, and importantly, clawing back bonuses from executives, including the CEO and CFO. The area that's been challenging for attorneys is not explaining what cooperation is or looks like, but rather whether cooperation is worth it. The SEC has not set forth a formula or put together some matrix to show what the result would have been had the company not cooperated. There's no set formula or algorithm or the equivalent of the federal sentencing guidelines. So you can't really calculate the discount in some of these cases. And SEC leadership has been pretty transparent recently that they're seeking higher civil penalties. So that can make it especially difficult for attorneys who are guiding companies through the process to point to exactly what the reward is for cooperating. Great. Thank you. I understand that the U.S. attorney's offices have issued their own voluntary disclosure policy. Are there differences between that and the criminal division's corporate enforcement policy? Thank you, Dave, for that question. This is Adam Braverman. I think the policies by and large part, mirror each other. There's a lot in common with respect to criminal divisions, voluntary self-disclosure policy, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office policy. But there are some key differences that I think that are worth noting. First off, probably the most significant difference is that if a company complies with the voluntary self-disclosure policy, the criminal division has a policy that full compliance equals declination for the company. The difference with the U.S. Attorney's Office is that there is no such guarantee. In the U.S. Attorney's Office world, full compliance means that there's a presumption for no guilty plea, but leaves open the door for possible non-prosecution agreements or deferred prosecution agreements. So there's certainly more uncertainty when it comes to the U.S. Attorney's Office policy. The second key difference between the two policies is in the arena of fine reductions. Uh, with respect to the U.S. Attorney's Office policy, U.S. Attorney's Office requires for any kind of fine reduction that you have to have voluntary self-disclosure. When it comes to the criminal division's policy, the criminal division contemplates a universe where you can still get a fine reduction even if you don't have a voluntary self-disclosure, as long as the company is fully cooperative 
and immediately remediates any of the issues it discovers. So I think really the big takeaway here is that when you compare the two different policies, the U.S. Attorney's Office policy presents certainly potential for additional uncertainty. And when a company is examining which entity to approach first for voluntary self-disclosures, practitioners right now are really considering first approaching the criminal division because you have a lot more certainty when it comes to their policy. The developments that we've observed is that both the DOJ and the SEC are taking enforcement actions against corporations that fail to preserve electronic communications. Is the preservation of electronic communications and the regulatory focus on that a new development, or is it just more of an uptick in enforcement on these issues lately? When it comes to the Department of Justice, it's certainly not a new phenomena. Dating back to 2016, 2017, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act section within the department had already addressed this. And as part of their corporate enforcement policy and voluntary disclosure policy, had already looked at this as a significant issue and commented that appropriate retention of business records and prohibiting the improper destruction or deletion of business records, including these types of personal communications, was paramount to a corporate compliance policy. With that in mind, for the current administration, Deputy Attorney General Monaco came into the department back in 2021, wanted the department to re-examine its policies when it comes to corporate enforcement, and in 2022 issued a policy that identifies these communication devices and platforms as a significant corporate compliance risk and wanted all of the litigating components within the Department of Justice to establish a policy to address this. Her memo went on to specifically highlight three areas that the DAG expected to see as part of these policies and expected to see corporations consider. So first off, the DAG highlighted that she's expecting for corporations to adopt policies that govern the use of personal devices and third-party messaging platforms. Second, she's expecting companies to undertake training, to provide clear training to employees about its practices. And then third, she's also expecting to see enforcement. So if there are violations identified by a company, the department expects to see some type of enforcement. Critically, the DAG also mentioned in her memo that she wants each of the litigating components to require that if a company actually seeks cooperation credit, to have implemented one of these policies that will allow it to collect and provide to the government work-related communications. And so it's with this in mind that the criminal division updated its policies in March of this year to include the DAG's guidance. And let me turn over to Gina to talk about the SEC. Thanks, Adam. The SEC really grabbed the attention of legal and compliance professionals, as well as boards, especially those in financial services, but really across all industries, when they announced a billion dollars in penalties against 16 Wall Street firms on a single day last year for failing to maintain and preserve text messages on personal devices that had to do with business matters. These settlements included charges of violations of the record-keeping provisions of the federal securities laws that apply to broker-dealers who have very specific and heightened record-keeping provisions, which Enforcement Director Gabir Graywall called sacrosanct. 
As described in the SEC's orders, the firms admitted that from at least 2019, so for several years, their employees often communicated through various messaging platforms on their personal devices, including iMessage, WhatsApp, and Signal, about the business of their employers, and the firms admitted that they didn't maintain or preserve most of these written communications. The violations were alleged to be firm-wide and at all levels of authority at the firms. The SEC has more recently announced earlier this month another round of these record-keeping settlements against 11 financial institutions for a combined penalty this time of $289 million. The latest announcement shows that the SEC continues to be focused on these issues and continues to impose significant penalties for these violations, and they took the opportunity to emphasize the importance of self-reporting and cooperation. Another area we've seen some additional activity and guidance around has been compensation and clawbacks, and both the SEC and the DOJ seem to have a particular interest in these areas as well. What do you think they are doing in that area and what are they trying to achieve with some of the guidance we've recently seen? That's right, Dave. The SEC has for years been pointing to SOX 304 clawbacks as a tool to hold public company executives accountable. And I think they would describe the use of clawbacks as a matter of equity and fundamental fairness. They want to show that even though an individual executive may not have violated the federal securities laws, those executives who presided over a company or led a company where misconduct occurred that required the company to restate their financials, those individuals must reimburse the company for bonuses and profits from stock sales that resulted from an inflated stock price. I think the thought is that executives shouldn't get to profit from misstatements in their company's financials. It's not so much punishing the executive, but getting back what's seen as ill-gotten gains from an officer who wouldn't have received a bonus or been able to profit from selling stock if the stock was trading where it should have been without the misstatement about its financials. And if you look at it historically, different commissions have sought SOX 304 clawbacks with greater and lesser frequency. So Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in 2002. The first enforcement case that sought clawbacks was in 2007 in the stock options backdating context. And the SEC under chairs Mary Shapiro and Mary Jo White increased the number of cases involving SOX 304 clawbacks and importantly, standalone claims under Section 304 meaning where there was no wrongdoing alleged against the executive. The commission under Chairman Jay Clayton brought fewer Section 304 clawbacks cases, and now under Chairman Gary Gensler, probably not surprisingly, the SEC has been increasing their pursuit of SOX 304 clawbacks. Recently, Enforcement Director Gervier Graywall has noted in speeches and statements that the SEC is committed to using SOX 304 as Congress intended to incentivize a culture of compliance at public companies and that executives should be on notice that the SEC Enforcement Division views SOX 304 as broad authority in seeking all forms of compensation that should be reimbursed to the company. Christine, how has DOJ approached clawbacks? So, Gina, I think it's been similar to 
the SEC and that the DOJ has considered how a company deals with wrongdoing. In other words, do they discipline employees? And maybe that's through termination. Maybe that's through compensation, clawbacks, other types of disincentives. But what the DOJ has done more recently is made it formal. They've now launched what's called the Pilot Program on Compensation Incentives and Clawbacks. And it's really intended to formalize that a company as part of its compliance program, as part of its policies and procedures, should offer financial carrots and sticks. So it should incentivize compliance by delaying certain compensation until an employee has demonstrated conduct that's consistent with a company values and policies. And a company should disincentivize noncompliance by setting up a clawback scheme. It's similar to what how you explained the SEC's approach on this. It's interested in doing this to shift the burden of corporate financial penalties away from shareholders onto those who are directly responsible for the misconduct. Now, I think the interesting thing about this area is that if you talk to compensation consultants, their advice to companies is generally to set up compensation schemes that are set up that are related to measurable financial metrics. And here, the DOJ and the SEC is asking for metrics that are not necessarily easy to measure, but nonetheless are what companies need to do in order to set up compliance programs and policies that are in line with DOJ's expectations. In light of all these developments coming out of the DOJ and the SEC, what are you advising companies and boards to do these days? Dave, I think there's a number of things that companies can do right now. First, I think our top recommendation would be to conduct a risk assessment. Look at the company's retention policy for electronic communications. Look at the company's policies with respect to corporate compensation structure and see what types of risks the company has. Second, update those policies. The whole policy behind the department issuing this type of guidance is to create a culture of compliance. And so now is the time for companies to examine their policies and potentially update them. Third, we would suggest training. It's a key part of all these policies at the department is expecting companies to train their employees on what the appropriate policies are. And then finally, I think I would mention that it's important also to consider local employment and privacy laws, depending on where the company is situated, both domestically and internationally. There are a variety of different local employment and privacy laws that may impact the company's decision with respect to whatever policies it wants to implement. Great. Thank you for that. And thank you all for all of your insights today. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.